Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. It's a sunny day here in East London. I'm on the Barking Road. I've just walked past what used to be the old Bolin ground. I remember going there as a gooner, sitting in, well, standing in the away fans section against West Ham. We won. Past Upton Park. Yeah, it's now flats. They're sprouting cranes and awnings, of course. Turn right, just past the Bobby Moore statue where he's holding aloft the Jules Rimet trophy amongst his teammates and you'll find another East London institution, Newham Bookshop. I'm here to meet with Vivian Archer, proprietor, and also her close friend, Benjamin Zephaniah. He doesn't really need much of an introduction. You might know him as Jeremiah Jesus. You might know him as a Kung Fu stylist, a dub poet, musician, artist, vegan. He speaks truth to power like few can or do. Let's go inside Newham Bookshop and get talking. Thank you both very, very much for joining us on Ex Libris. Benjamin, this place obviously has a special place in your heart. Can you explain why and why you've chosen it today to be here of all the bookshops and all the libraries in all the world? (laughs) Well, because it has a special place in my heart. You see... When I came down from Birmingham, I kind of lived in South London for a while and then I moved to East London and I got involved in a cooperative. It was kind of food cooperative, book cooperative, and they published my first book, actually. The shop was called The Whole Thing. The publisher was called Page One Books. And it was very hippie and alternative. But we always knew about this place. And it wasn't like competition, you know. It was like we'd share information and stuff and we'd hear about the legendary Vivian Archer. Mm-hmm. That place closed down, and then much later on, I moved to a house which was not far from here. And I was always very keen on kind of keeping myself to myself. So I came here a couple of times, and what's the word, incognito? Mm-hmm. Nobody knew who yeah. I was. I just buy some books and stuff like this. I think one day, you recognised me, didn't you? I think. One day she said, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and then from that day, we just had a great relationship. You see... For me, this was like what a bookshop should be like, you know. I don't know how she does it, but you'd come in and you'd ask Vivian about a book or you're going through something in your life and you tell her what you're going through and there's always a book that she can recommend for you. Mm. She's either just completely read it or got a friend that's read it and reviewed it. for. She knows about it, you know. And it was at a time when all these, I won't mention any names, but bigger shops are kind of springing up. Well, you go in there. <coughs> Woodstones. <coughs> I didn't say that. Mm. But you'd go there, and the people, most of the time, didn't know the book. You know, they didn't, you know, they were just shop assistants. Not all. And also, the kind of community events that kind of happened here or that were generated from here. And I've always been passionate about people that don't like books and don't like bookshops, and they came here. Mm. You know, that's been my passion for ages, trying to get people to read that don't normally read. I mean, in a sense, I owe this place a lot of money because I technically had a room upstairs that I do all my interviews in. Right. We just became family, and it was the only thing that really saddened me when I was moving out of here. You know, and I remember remember Vivian, actually, almost in tears, going, do you have to go, you know? But I just had enough of the pollution, of being stopped by the police and all that kind of stuff. I just wanted to go somewhere different. Yes. But for that reason, it's always been like um, a special place for me. It was special before I knew it, but it got even more special when I got to know the place. And it's still a home from home, obviously. Yeah, I mean, if I come to London, I tend to come in this way. And it's weird because even at night when the shops close, I'll drive past and look at it and make sure it's all here. And so, and I know it's not just me. I know there are other writers that connect with the place. We know if you've done a book, all my book launches used to be here. 
Yeah. And it wasn't like, a, how can I put it, a corporate book launch. I'd get local kids in. You remember when we had them acting out? Refugee for Yeah, sections of my book. Gangster nice. rap. When gangster, gangster rap, rap, we had the kids kind of rapping to each other, acting like they and were... face. Yeah, all done here, you see. So a real home from home. In a sense, I owe this place a lot in my development as a writer as well. And Vivian, you've won awards. You've won the Independent Bookshop of the Year in London. You yourself have won the first ever Books in My Bag Reader's Award for outstanding contribution to book selling. You are a bit of a legend in the book trade. Can you tell us a bit more about the shop's history? Because it's got quite an august history. Yes, the shop is 41 years old. It started as a project for parents to help children and adults to read. There were a lot of classes here that used to do that. It's always, always community is first. And we're very sensitive to everybody who lives in the area, to all those coming into the area, to make this a place that they feel welcome. When Benjamin said people come in and talk about problems they might have, that's still very much the case here. And they don't always buy books, and that doesn't matter. But they feel it's comfortable, it's safe, and it's welcoming. And I think that's quite rare in a lot of shops. But for us, that's always been key. But we've got a long history. That would be a sort of two-hour program. But um, <laughs> whole separate episode, yeah. Yeah. To us, communities, everything. And that's why I think we have such a good relationship with writers as well. I mean, the poets are special to us. There's people like Benjamin, Michael Rosen, John Hegley, and they will come back again and again because they know and appreciate what we do. Mm. I remember when um, I turned down the OBE. Oh, that was in here. Oh, that was here. Well, what happened? I turned down the OBE and it was all in the news and everything. And Channel 4 said they'd like to do an interview with me and Yasmin Alabaya Brown in the studio. I said, I'm happy to be on the program, but I'm not coming to you. It was the day I should have received this, I think. I said, I'm going to be here with a group of kids. And it was our special Christmas evening, actually. Was it? Uh, right. I said, you come and see where I am. You come to me, see where my heart is. So that's what they did. Yasmin was in the studio. John Snow was um, presenting the programme, who, by the way, is also an OB refuse Nick. Oh, yeah, clock that. He's a great man. I hadn't clocked that. Yeah. Yasmin, at, at that time, had accepted an OBE. Yes. So we began the programme and I said, this is where I am. This is where my heart is. You know, why are you not here, Benjamin? And I was talking to Yasmin and Yasmin was saying that one of the reasons why she accepted an OBE was because she wanted to inspire young Asian girls to become journalists. And I said, look, do you know where I live? You can't tell me anything about young Asian girls and they're already inspired by you. It's not about the OBE or anything. And I started to go on a rant. And she went, OK, Benjamin, stop, stop. You've convinced me. I'm going to give back my OBE. In the middle wow. of the programme. I met John Snow the other day. He was in the British Museum and I bumped into him. And he said that he'll never forget that. Because he said, people don't usually, yeah. e even if they capitulate, they don't do it on air. They, later on they say, you know, you were right mm -hmm. or whatever. But she did it on air. She said, you've convinced me. And um, That's a brave thing to that's do. That's a very brave thing to do. Her. That's yes, a really yes, yes, cool yes. thing to yeah. do. And the next day she writes this article in the, I think it was the Observer, about me convincing her. And I didn't come heavy on her. I was just telling her that Asian girls respect her anyway. Yeah. In fact, she could lose some respect by taking it. I wonder it, if especially she... Especially around here. I, I'm sure your powers of persuasion would have worked in the studio, but I wonder if she would have done it if it hadn't been that you were in Newham Bookshop surrounded by the community and surrounded by kids, etc. and that sort of... I don't know. Who knows? But, but the next day, she wrote this really great article about how do you give an OBE back? Do you go to the, the gates of Buckingham Palace <laughs> and throw it back? Do you call the Queen? Do you do this? But, you know, the reason why I did that was because I wanted to show them that, first of all, this place is significant and these people are significant. And it's, for me, it's not about getting awards from the state. In your very, very enjoyable, brilliant memoir, which I've loved going over ahead of today, you have a great first sentence, which is, I hate autobiographies, which begs well, the question, why write one? And did you enjoy writing it? I always say that autobiographies, when I think of autobiographies, I used to think of people that were kind of, you know, it's their dying words just before they died, that's the old-fashioned way. 
or recently, it's almost the opposite. You join a boy band or a girl band and you write an autobiography and you're still 18. <laughs> you know, just like <laughs> my life <laughs> at 18. I just thought my life wasn't that interesting, but I had a really good agent, Rosemary Cantor. Did you know her? She was amazing. I think I may have described her in the book as yeah. looking like Lady Penelope. She yeah. came, she had always had great hair, wore all these nice, really pencil skirts and just had these amazing glasses that just kind of from the 60s, really glamorous women. And then we'd go to dinner all the time. She kept, And she was my agent for my children's novels, well, young adults' novels. Yeah. And so she didn't have a financial interest in it, but she used to listen to me talking about my life and she said, Benjamin, you've got to do your autobiography. And I kept saying no for those two reasons I've just said. No, no, no. And then she said, Benjamin, I really want you to do your autobiography. There was something about the way she said it that day, and I realised what it was now. I'll come to that in a moment. And I said, OK, I'll do it on certain conditions, on the condition that you don't go and get me a publishing deal, you don't look for a publisher, no contract, no deadline, no money up front. I want to take my time and do this. This is going to be my book, you know. I mean, they're all my books, but yeah. I don't want any deadline. I want to write this at my own pace. And it's got to talk a little bit about my mother, so partly my mother's biography, because I didn't think there was many stories about Caribbean women coming over in the 50s and certainly in Britain. And so that was it. So I went away and started writing it. She saw the first draft, loved it. She said, forward on. And then she passed away. Ah. She never actually saw the end book. And I realise now, the time I agreed, why she was so forceful. You know, she's like, mm. Benjamin, I want to see your autobiography. And she never told me how ill she was. Oh, that's and there was a few people in the business that knew how ill she was, but, she, you know, they were kind of sworn to silence. And so that really saddens me. I wish I'd have said yes earlier. But it's just the way it is. I didn't realise she was trying to say to me, I want to see your book before I die. But she saw the first she draft, saw a draft of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, the life and rhymes, but I'm surprised you feel you felt like your life wasn't interesting enough because it feels like you've led lifetimes and rhymes, several lifetimes. And I think also in terms of the autobiography, you, you have this real infectious honesty in all your work, which negates those sorts of charges that can be levelled against other memoirs that perhaps were putting you off. And that really comes through in the book as well. Yeah, well, I try to be as honest as possible. I said in the first part of the book that I think some of them are so dishonest. I mean, I know people have done autobiographies that, and I know they've been dishonest. The only things that I would have liked to put in my autobiography that I didn't put in there, I put in because of legal reasons of other people. But I'll put anything in there, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. Because I want to show people that, especially people that come from the same cultural, economic place that mm -hmm. I come from, first of all, that you can spin your life round, you can turn your life round. I remember a time thinking, well, you know, I just came to terms with the fact that my life is going to be going in and out of prison. It was for a short moment. I thought, no, I can do something better than this. But, you know, I know people who are in that same position and they haven't changed. They do think their life is going to be just going in and out of prison. You've heard this a hundred times before. There's something about men and the front they put up and the lack of honesty they have and the lack of, oh, I'm going to say, you know, emotional intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But Totally. I just want to be really honest. I mean, people say to me, why are you so close to your mother? Why are you so close to your mother? Well, when I was getting in trouble in school... Nobody really asked me what was going on at home. So imagine there's a 13-year-old me or something, and I'm not paying attention in school, and I'm seen as a naughty boy. And you, the teacher, ask me, what's going on, Benjamin? You're not just calling me naughty now. You're saying, what's going on? What's going on at home? And I turn around to you and say, well, look, you know, until 3 o'clock this morning, I had to listen to my father beating my mother. And then when I got up, you know, my mother was battered black and blue. There was no food for us. You know, Dad just kicked us out the house. I said, go to school. And you want me to be nice? Mm. And there are people living like that now, but nobody ever talked to me about it. I just had to do it and be strong. Yeah. I mean, the first time I was arrested, I was arrested for attempting to murder my father. I mean, it wasn't serious. It was a pen knife. It was and, a pen you know, knife, yeah. But in my head, I mean, I was only a child at the time. That was it, because he was going to murder my mother. Yeah. So I do know one thing that, after the book's come out, I've got so many people come to me. And what surprises me is some people who were quite high profile, much higher profile than me, and said, oh, I've had similar things in my life. And, but they don't talk about it. Mm. But I think if you have to, or if you want to, 
know my poetry and know where I come from and know why I'm so angry and know how I've connected this stuff to politics and all that stuff. You should know the backstory. Yeah, and a lot of it, certainly in terms of the poetry, but all of this, going back to your mother, a lot of it comes from her, doesn't it? And her roots. And you write right at the beginning of the book, that lovely sort of scene setter right at the top. I'll read a tiny bit. I look around and count all the other tin baths hang on the wall of the yard we share with our neighbours, hearing mum speaking to me in rhyme. She does this all the time. There's a rhyme. It's part of her nature, her sing-song way of interpreting the world that makes me feel close to her. And you then go on to say, poetry, storytelling and music were a part of everyday life. We just did it. It was how we communicated with one another. So there, right there, built in is the oral tradition, isn't it? And that's coming from your mother and her roots in Jamaica. Is that... Yeah, but let me tell you, you probably read it better than I could read it. <laughs> really? Seriously, I'm very dyslexic. You ask me to read my own book now and I'll really struggle. I can do poetry off my head, but when it comes to reading... But when I'm writing, I'm hearing the voice in my head. Derek Walcott was once asked, I think somebody was trying to pit us against each other. They said, um, you know, to Derek Walcott, what do you think about poets like Benjamin Zephaniah who write for performance? And, and his answer was something like, well, as far as I can understand... Most people of Caribbean and African origin write with a voice in their head. Mm. And I would say that's probably true of people like Seamus Heaney as well. You know, they write hearing the word sound in their head. It's not just an intellectual exercise on the page. The oral tradition is a wonderful thing, and it survived for thousands of years in some places. But we must not over-romanticise it. I didn't wake up and say I want to join the oral tradition. Right? <laughs> I just couldn't read and write. And the other thing is that my mother was semi-literate. She doesn't really like me when I say this, you know. She could read very basically. But if you ask my mother where she got her wisdom from, where she got kind of teachings about how to grow up as a girl in Jamaica and everything, she'll refer to poems and songs mm. and stories and Nancy stories and stories like that that her grandmother told her or her mother. So it was a living, breathing thing. It wasn't something that my mum chose to join. It was, no. it was really important way of surviving in the Caribbean and it's not my area of expertise but they've done some amazing things with the oral tradition in terms of keeping things alive that weren't just from the Caribbean or Jamaica or any of the other islands they come from Africa and Nancy himself the spider comes from Africa and there are lots of other traditions and words and, and some people say that even the way Jamaican patois the way we mm. talk is like the English language with African grammar. Hmm. You, say, you say, where are you? You say, oh, where are you there? <laughs> you know, translated into English, that's, is where you are. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it makes sense in an African language. Isn't it? I mean, there's lots of African languages, mm -hmm. but in most African languages, it would make sense. So you've taken the English language and just put an African, I'm not going to say grammar, you put an African swing mm -hmm. on it, you know, you put an African. And it's lovely, I mean, even there's people that can speak about this much better than me, like Michael Rosen and people like that, but even the way that black and Asian people use English here, instead of saying, what's happening, we say, what? Yeah. Yeah. That was my generation, what? Or we say, wagwan. Yeah, yeah. Wagwan. So you got that kind of English with the kind of African swing, and then you got young Asians come up, and they're mixing with people who are also African, and then they go, what's guaning? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so beautifully creative, yeah. you know? And it, it just makes great poetry, it makes great street talk, and most of all, it's kind of survival. You know, I remember being around here once, actually, just down Green Street, and a guy came up to me and he went, have you got any reefer, man? And I just laughed at him, you're a copper. <laughs> you're living in the past, the words have moved on, bro. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of survival. You're changing the words all the time. Yeah. New communities come in and they have different meanings, you know. Well, you must know that better than anyone, Vivian. Well, yes. I mean, that's what I love about working here, having the shop here. We can always tell who's moving in by the dictionaries we sell. And it's such a vibrant community and it's such a changing community. And we're very proud that they feel comfortable coming in here, asking about their books, sometimes in other languages, some of which some of our workers here speak. It's a very, very great community. And you know what Benjamin says about it is absolutely right. And we love it. I think we have to understand, us here in this room, we understand this, but I think we've got to tell the people out there that when we talk about multiculturalism in Britain, 
it's the greatest thing that we do. And you've got to stop thinking of it as a black, Asian, or even Irish thing. Yeah. And always have done. Yeah, yeah it, it, that's my point. I mean, go back to the early tribes. I don't know if you ever read my poem, The British. And I just take all these tribes and put them together to make a, a meal called the British. I do it like a recipe. The Dutch, the Silla, the Celts, the Angles, the Saxons. And then it comes up to the modern day with the Ethiopians and the Jamaicans and you, you know, you're making, and then you just sprinkle equal rights and justice, equally mm. sprinkles for everybody, you know. We've been doing that so well for thousands of years. And the problem, I hesitate to call it a problem, but in this setting I'm call it a problem. The problem with multiculturalism is that when it's working well, you don't notice it, you just get on. Mm. I don't have a girlfriend from India and go, wow, I'm doing multiculturalism. I just like the girl and I'm moving in. <laughs> right? You know, we just do things. We just we get a band together mm. and it just happens naturally. So you don't get news reports saying today in East Ham, the Irish community lived really well with the Jewish community that lived really well with the black community. I mean, yeah, nothing yeah. happened. Everybody just got on. Absolutely. But the moment there's a little bit of problem, mm. it's yeah, multiculturalism is failing and you get all these people kind of... It's good to hear the, that reaffirmation. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's never been an issue for us. This is where we live and we all live together. But as Benjamin says, nowadays it is getting a little, you know, the whole references to, well, racism, which sadly is on the up. Not and, here so yeah. much. This is, you know, it's, it's not bad here, but it's certainly a different, different world we're beginning to live in. Well, I know, Benjamin, you were told by lots of people that you'd mellow as time went on and you, you said that you're feeling angrier than ever, or you're still as angry at least. It's a and very that's angry because time. of all these sorts of ongoing issues that haven't gone away since your youth and earlier struggles and campaigns, etc. A lady from the BBC approached me on the phone not so long ago and said she wanted to make a programme about people who are disenfranchised and people who getting in trouble with the police and stuff like that. She's looking at my background, I guess. She came and we just met, actually, and she didn't contact me again. And then I contacted a friend who knew her, and she said um, she thought you were too nice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and what she wants, she wants me to go, oh, I'm really yeah, angry yeah, with yeah. all white people. <laughs> <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I am probably more angrier now than I've ever been, right? But it's, I'm really lucky. I have a way of venting my anger. Yes through my poetry, and I can go on TV programs and talk about it. I can mm. talk about it here. Mm. But I understand with a lot of people, especially younger people, that haven't got that outlet. Where does my anger come from? I think it comes from years of struggle and seeing the three things that I was really passionate about as a young person was I wanted to see South Africa free, I wanted to see East Timor free, and I wanted to see Palestine free. Two out of three. Free. Yeah. Palestine doesn't seem to be getting any better. But I felt that the struggle at home, we'd kind of reached a point where we would never see an organisation like the National Front again. I thought we would never see people marching on the streets saying white power again. Mm. There's lots of things about women's issues that I thought we'd dealt with. And then suddenly they came back and hit us with a vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> it really amazes me now that I'm going on to a show and it's not just the BBC, it's other places, especially the mainstream media. And they say, you know, we want you to come on and talk about your experiences of fighting racism or whatever it is. And for balance, they have to have a racist on with me. Uh. <laughs> for balance. Worth mentioning the new monitoring project. Well, that was an organisation I'm passionate about. So they started in Newham, the NMP we call them, New Monitoring Project, because of the death of a young Asian man here. At the time, there were organisations springing up all over London, all over the country to a certain extent, to organise to fight racism. We knew that one of our slogans was, you know, unite and fight. This was 1980... Early 80s. Yeah. And there was a BMP councillor in Beckton, yeah. wasn't there? I remember when I first came here, they used to say Canning Town was a no-go area for black people. I remember I got in a taxi once and I said to the taxi driver, because I just wanted to see, take me there. And he went, no. I said, just take me there, just have a look. And he went, no. I said, look, you know, don't worry about me. I'll look after myself. He said, I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about me. <laughs> you know, and he's a white guy. <laughs> you know, I said, me taking you in there, you know, that's what it was like. So the NMP's thing was monitoring racism, but it wasn't just the racism of the racist. A lot of people have to understand how racist the police were, openly racist. There's a very well-known 
bit of footage and photograph of a demonstration and there's these anti-racists there and the police are in the middle and this police officer turns around to the police van and he writes with his finger, you know, in the dirt on the van, NF. That's the police officer on duty, you know. You were allowed to be a member of the National Front and the police in, back in those days. I think they've made that illegal now. Yeah. So that was our struggle. And the slogan that came out of the new monitoring project, it may have been kind before, I don't know, but probably was, but I loved it, was we are here to police the police. Because that was one of our biggest fears, the police. And the racists got you on the street, you could fight them, yeah. you could deal with them sometimes. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose and you run off and whatever. When the police got you, they got you in a cell and they give you a kick in. You know. There's a line in one of my poems, this policeman keeps on kicking me to death, yes. that says, well, he beat me so badly, I was on the floor. He said, if I don't plead guilty, he will keep me more. I was feeling sick, I pleaded, racist attack. Mm. And another police come to finish me off, this one was black. It's absolutely true. In West Ham Station, they had been there. They were giving me a kick in. And I said, you racist. I mean, I was only young at the time. You racist. Like, we are not racist. We'll show you that we are not racist. And they just left the room. And this black policeman came in and just started beating me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you laugh at it, but that's what it was like. You know what I mean? Because I knew then, back then, and to a certain extent even now, one of the things that a lot of black people fear is a black copper. Yeah because they're out to impress the white guys. You know what I mean? They're not going to impress you. They're out to impress their people. That's a generalisation, and I know there may be... I've known people that are trying to police force to try to do good, but that was our experience. Sure. So the new monitoring project was really, really important. The police would turn up at a house because there'd been some problem there, and by the time they'd left, an Asian woman... Five foot two, being arrested for assaulting three police officers. You know, it was really crazy stuff like that. They had 24-hour helplines. Yes. You could ring them. Right. We gave all young people cards. We had solicitors. I mean, a lot of these cats were like, they did law. That really inspired me when I came to London. When I was in Birmingham, we were just street fighters. Yeah. You know, we'd fight the police, we'd fight the races and everything, and that was it. And then we'd have to run. When I came to London and came to Newham, there were street fighters, but there were street fighters with a degree in law. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so, yeah, we could organise now. Were you right how you swapped a gang for another gang in your book? Yeah, and I mean, in the book I tended to, I think I was referring to a gang of poets and writers and musicians, yeah. but also people like the New Monitoring yeah. Project, you know, people that were in the struggle but kind of knew the law. One of the things that people take advantage of is if you don't know the law. And one of the reasons why I'm passionate about education now is because I always tell young people that one thing you'll know about your oppressors, they're all highly educated, <laughs> you know. So who are you to turn around and say, well, I'm not going to be educated? Mm. You have to know your stuff. Two of my heroes in this world, one of them is no longer with us, Tony Benn and Noam Chomsky. One of the things that those two people have in common is that they always say, understand your enemy, read your enemy, yeah. <laughs> you know. Don't just read stuff that you agree with. Read stuff that you don't agree with. Know what the law is. Know what makes them tick. Know what elements of the law they're using against you. And so what elements you can use back. And that really makes a difference. I think it was Malcolm X that said, some racists hate black men, but most racists hate educated black men. <laughs> mm. And how was it in the context of progress or or not progress? It must have been difficult going back into if we rewind again to your childhood and mm. your mum's journey over to Britain from Jamaica you're going back into that with her for the book sort of coincided if I'm right with the spate of horrifying stories about the Windrush generation yeah. and how they were being treated by the state that must have been really tough well it's really interesting because as I said I wanted my mum's story to be in there because she was part of the Windrush generation and people didn't know about it and people just didn't yeah. understand unless you had a real interest in it unless you were a bookseller or something like that you know so I wanted to tell her story then suddenly it comes to the front but listen if you buy the Vice newspaper it's, it's just going monthly now but it used to be weekly almost every week in there they've got a story of somebody that's fallen foul of the immigration law somebody that's lived here for ages and they go to France on a shopping trip and they're not allowed back in. In 1987, I was flying to Jamaica 
And I got on the plane, as you do, and I was walking down, and there was a woman on the back seat, and she recognised me. She started, she started screaming, Benjamin Zephaniah, help me. I came to this country when I was four months old, and they deported me back to Jamaica, Ugh. a place I've never been to. This is 1987. And all the way on that flight in Jamaica, she was just screaming and crying. And every time I tried to go to get next to her, they just backed me off and made me sit down. But it's been happening for a long time. Like I said, the Voice newspaper has been following these stories. Then the Guardian picked it up. And then David Lammy brought it up in Parliament, yeah. which is why people start to know about it. And Theresa May kind of made it official, didn't she? She gave it a name. She said hostile environment. So she made it official now. There was an organisation called the Extradition Squad that was set up by Margaret Thatcher. And their job was to go around and find illegal immigrants and deport them. The death of Joy Gardner. They put a leather belt around her. Thirteen feet of tape and bound her. Handcuffs to secure her and only God knows what else. She's illegal, so deport her, said the empire that brought her. She died. Nobody killed her. And she never killed herself. It is our job to make her return to Jamaica, said the alien deporters who deport people like me. It was said she had a warning that the officers were calling on that deadly July morning as her young son watched TV. An officer unplugged the phone. Mother and child were now alone. When all they wanted was a home, a child watched mommy die. No matter what the law may say, a mother should not die this way. Let human rights come into play and to everyone apply. I know not of a perfect race. I know not of a perfect place, and I know this is not a simple case of yardies on the move. We must talk some race relations with the folks from immigration about this kind of deportation, if things are to improve. So, let it go down in history. The word is that officially, she died democratically in 13 feet of tape. That Christian was over here because pirates were over there. The Bible sent us everywhere to make Great Britain great. Here lies the extradition squad and we should all know prayer to God that as they go about their job they make not one mistake. For I fear as I walk the streets that one day I just may meet officials who may tie my feet and how would I escape? I see my people demonstrating and educated folks debating about the way they are separating the elders from the youth, when all we are demanding is a little overstanding. We too have family planning, now our children want the truth. As I move around I'm eyeing so many poets crying and so many poets trying to articulate the grief. And I cannot help but wonder how the alien deporters as they said to press reporters, can feel absolute relief. Now, I'm born here in Birmingham. I went to hospital once and I was bleeding and they said, you got Aston Villa in your blood. <laughs> I mean, that's how English I am, right? <laughs> right? I've been coming out, it's happened to me three times back in the day, coming out of tube stations. And I like living in a country where you got no, you don't need a passport or something. And they get stopped by one of these officers and say, right, prove your English, prove your British. You go, hey, look at my blood, it's got Aston Villa in it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? How do you prove your English in a country where you don't need to carry papers and, and all that kind of stuff? So my point is this has been going on for a long time and there are very special reasons why it's been brought to the forefront. It's not getting better. It's not getting better, no, no. Some people think there's a body set up to help people and stuff like this. But actually, there's one poor guy the other day that was deported to Jamaica and within a few days he was murdered. Mm. If you go to the poor parts of Jamaica and they think you come from England, they think you're rich. And the other thing was, and it wasn't just that actually, the other thing that got this guy murdered was that I think when he was sent back, they said he was a criminal and a rapist or something. The guy was clean. But they just heard, yeah, he's a criminal and a rapist. Let's go beat him. It's very sad. It's not getting better. Something can be in the media and talked about in a particular way. So people think it's happening now and they don't realise it's been happening all the time. Then it drops out of the media and they think it stopped happening. You know, it's such a powerful thing, the media. If you read books, I don't use this word lightly, if you are an intellectual of any kind, it's different because you're trying to think for yourself. 
But don't live in that bubble. Understand that most people believe the shit they get in the media. Mm. So if it's not in the media, they think it's okay. Most people think that most rapes happen when a guy jumps out of a bush, grabs a woman, and most rapes happen in a house with people who know people, you know, you know, all that mm -hmm. stuff, right? I mean, there are so many things you can see the way the media kind of distort the way that people see the world. I don't know if you know my poem, The Wrong Radio Station. My ears are battered and burnt, and I have just learned that I have been listening to the wrong radio oh, station. Yes. My mind has been brutalized, now the pain can't be disguised. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I was beginning to believe that all black men were bad men and white men would reign again. I was beginning to believe that I was a mindless drug freak that couldn't control my sanity or my sexuality. I was beginning to believe that I couldn't believe in nothing except nothing, and all I ever wanted to do was to get you and to do you. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. It goes on and on. Thousands of people are listening to the wrong radio station and viewing yeah. the wrong TV station, and they can believe anything. I remember when I was here, when the Gulf War started, outside this bookshop, I met a guy. It was the build-up to the Gulf War, and he said, um, Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda are going to get together and invade us. <laughs> and I said, Saddam Hussein hates Al-Qaeda, <laughs> you know, hates them. He was one of the few people in the Middle East that set up an organisation to crush Al-Qaeda. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that all these people from the Islamic world, because they're all Muslims together, aren't they? They're just going to get together. And I think it was Tony Blair that said they got 45 minutes and they can come and get us in 45 mm. minutes. You know, and people believe it. And because they think there's educated people that operate the media. So my mother rings me one night and she says, Benjamin, tell me something. You know any of them Tilly, tilly people? I said, what Tilly people? Any of them Tally, Tilly, Tally people? I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, they are uh, all on there, all on there. Taliban people, Taliban. <laughs> you know, Taliban. <laughs> I said, Mom, I don't know any Taliban. There's no Taliban in Islam, <laughs> you know. She said, well, they're coming to get us. You know that, don't you? They're coming to get us. And it was in the middle of the night. I said, Mom, what are you doing? She said, I'm listening to Radio 5 Live. <laughs> I said, Mom, turn off the radio the and go radio to sleep. Station. You know, the wrong radio station. And you knew, again, going back to your childhood, you knew from eight... There's a great section in the book. You're at the Boys' Brigade. Yes. And all the other kids want to be soldiers, policemen, firemen, etc. Yeah. And you say you want to be a pirate. Yeah. And you knew then that you wanted to be a pirate from that. I'm wondering what that, what you thought that, as a kid, what, what that represented. When I was eight years old, I had this idea when I was thinking about jobs that I'm going to be a poet and I'm going to travel the world and my poetry is going to be, like, funny. And it, I probably didn't have this... I didn't say political, but it's going to be about the wrong things in the world and the wars, and I'm going to write a poem about peace. And at the same time, I'm going to make them funny, and I'm going to make them sexy, and I'm going to have rhythm and rhyme, and I'm going to make it like music. My poetry's going to be like music, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the idea that I had in my head. So, yeah, in the you boys' brigade. Yeah, tick, tick, tick. <laughs> well, but the guy comes to me and says, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And all the other boys say, I want to be a fireman. I, want to be... I said, I want to be a poet. And he said... When was the last time you saw a poet skin a rabbit? And I was like, I've never seen anybody skin a rabbit. <laughs> I think I'm going to leave the boys because you know. But I had this real vision of what I wanted to be when I was eight, seriously. And then the interesting thing is I followed the crowd for a long time. And then, as you know, I got involved in crime and somebody wanted to shoot me and kill me. And I was armed too. And I'm lying in bed one night and I just think... Remember the eight-year-old you, Benjamin? That's possible, you know, bro. Mm. That's what I'm telling myself. I remember listening to an LP by Marvin Gaye called What's Going On. I'm like, what's going on with you, Benjamin? Teacher told me I'm going to end up dead or doing a life sentence. A lot of people said there's no way out of it. I saw some of my friends being killed and doing life sentences. And I got up that next morning, and that was it. It's amazing that poetry, effectively, not to be too simplistic, but poetry pulled you out yeah, or it, it pushed it you forward. It saved my life. It really saved my life. What was it that Bob Marley, Bob Marley wrote to you, didn't he? Yes. What did he say that pushed you forward or something along He's, those lines? He said something like, keep going, brother, Britain needs you. And so from feeling... that song, Keep On Moving, that he wrote after the assassination attempt on him. Keep on moving. Oh, yeah. Similar sort of sentiment yeah, anyway. Yeah, keep moving forward. And, you know, there were some people here that were saying, you know, you've got good poetry. But uh, to be honest, a lot of them were saying, you know, good poems, but, you know, get a job kind of thing. A lot of important people were saying that what you do is rubbish. I remember when I published my first booklet, 
and went to Birmingham and I had my then girlfriend with me. I went back to my dad. I was so proud. And it was, I hesitate to call it a book now. It was like a book lit. But it made a lot of noise at the time because no one had ever heard Caribbean voices like that in print, really. Mm. They'd heard some of the more literate poets, but not the kind of street poets like me. And people talk about me on the news and the television and everything, you know. And I, was, I kind of went back to my dad, who I didn't really get on with. I just gave him a copy of the book and I stood there really proud with my girlfriend. And he didn't even look at it, just threw it on the floor and said, come on, who wants to listen to anything you've got to say? Oh. <laughs> you know? Many years later, I made peace with him and he went and lived in Barbados and he was driving these little buggies. He used to drive tourists around and he looked behind him and there was a couple in there and they were reading one of my books. And he turned around and went, that's my son. And apparently this couple gave my dad a lecture on me and they were telling my dad things that my dad just didn't know. And it was, it was all about why I was important to them and what I did for literature and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, and could you imagine my dad, he's, he's, this is not long before he dies, thinking, I didn't know my son. Yeah. I didn't know him. And to be honest, I was going to say I didn't know my dad, but I did know him in a sense. I never went to bad mouth him. I didn't go to the funeral and all that stuff because of me and my mum had a really rough time. He used to beat my mum and all that kind of stuff. So I, I try not to bad mouth him. But I was going to say I don't know him, but I do know him in a sense. He's a chauvinist. He put up a front. He didn't feel that he was, like, married. He feel like he had a woman. He was in control of a woman. And if somebody came to him and said, you know, I saw your wife down the road, he'd feel that's losing control. Right. She was there and I didn't know she was there. I should know all her movements. He was trying to live up to, I don't know, a kind of man that just is not very positive. It was very negative. And he had this amazing work ethic. Came into Britain, worked for the GPO, yeah. sweeping floors literally or something like that then worked his way up right to big manager. When he was buried, he requested he was buried in his post office suit, his GPL suit, in Barbados, where it's hot. Yes. I mean, even if you're dead, you want to be buried, buried naked there. Sorry. He <laughs> <laughs> jokes about that. But where he puts his importance is the front, you know. The uniform. Yes. But, yeah, I always had a very strong vision of what I want to do. And when it comes to my mum, to this day, I mean, she loves the fact that I'm famous. She just doesn't really know what I do. <laughs> and as well as Bob Marley, notably your poetry struck a chord with Nelson Mandela and you had you mentioned South Africa and apartheid mm. as a big, big cause for you. His second visit here, he requested a meeting with me because he'd read my poetry while he was in prison and heard some cassette tapes, remember Amazing. them? <laughs> he was having a meeting with Thatcher that day. <laughs> for some reason, he said... I want to see you before I see Thatcher. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like he wants to be debriefed or something, you know. <laughs> but I was really honest with him. I told him there was a time when Thatcher hated you. You know that, yeah. don't you? There was a time when she called you a terrorist. I said, Mandela, we call him Madiba. I said, Madiba, a lot of people being nice to you now. And they're only nice to you now because you're free. All these young people and people are behind you. But don't be tricked by the hypocrites. I remember a time when me and Tony Benn were locked up for being on apartheid demonstrations. Jeremy Corbyn, I remember him being locked up. And what did the paper say afterwards? Benjamin Zeff and I supporting the terrorist Nelson Mandela. Wow. And he, he was aware of that, actually. I mean, the thing he said to me was that um, when he came out of prison, he really didn't want to be president. He told me this firsthand. He never wanted to be president of South Africa. Not after he came out of prison. Why? Because he said... He was tired and he wanted to. We used to have a debate about shirts. He used to love coloured shirts. And the reason why he said he loved coloured shirts was because I've been to Robben Island and this is absolutely true. I was going to say it's grey, it's not grey, it's kind of brown. There's this brown dust everywhere. And the prison's made with this rock and mm. it's everywhere. And you don't see colour. So he was really into wearing. He loved colour. He hadn't seen colour for a long time. And he hadn't seen children grow up. Do you remember there was a period where he was always with his grandchildren yes. and, and his relatives and they were all, because he didn't see children grow up, he missed seeing children. And so there was that period of time when he always had coloured shirts on and he always had his grandchildren around him. And he wanted to live life, but he knew that South Africa needed a figurehead. He knew that he had to, it's capitalism, he had to attract investment into the country and all that kind of stuff. This is a heavy thing to say, but there's one time I had a phone conversation with him and it was over a poet called Mazwaki Mbuli. He was the poet at Nelson Mandela's inauguration. Mm -hmm. Good friend of mine, 
great guy, seven foot tall. Just before he's going to go on tour, he was locked up for a robbery of a post office. It's a complete frame up. I mean, the amount of money they robbed from that post office is what he pays his musicians every night. And he was in prison, and the judge that had sent Mazwaki to prison swore allegiance to the racist regime, but wouldn't swear allegiance to Mandela's government. So I was on the phone to Mandela saying, get Mazwaki out. You know, he's due for a tour, we were expecting him. And we had an amazing row. And I said to him, what kind, this judge wouldn't swear allegiance to your free South Africa, but he's fair. And Mandela said to me, we need all the judges we can get. I said, Madiba, and I put the phone down on him, slammed the phone. <laughs> and there's a couple of people in my office that went, you just put the phone down on Nelson Mandela. <laughs> you know. And then we picked the phone up and then we apologised yeah. you know, for being so heated. And I spoke to him after that and he said he knew he made some mistakes in government. Right. And he wasn't perfect. And there was this kind of concentration and kind of bringing business in. And then when Winnie split with him, Winnie went to the townships. That's why she was so popular. She went to the townships and they saw her as a freedom woman, mm -hmm. freedom fighter, woman warrior. You know, she was still dressed in khakis. And Mandela was now in a suit, yeah. you know, attracting business. So, you know, we had lots of conversations about those kind of things. But overall, he was a very... I always say about Madiba Mandela that he was a human being. He knows it. He made some mistakes like any politician would. The one thing that makes him stand out through nearly any politician you can think of is that at a time when you could say that he had the right to come out of prison and go, right, I want revenge, I'm going to get it, you know. He just came out and he went, look, the past is the past. We're talking about South Africa there, but you write in the book, I always felt I had the ability to move in and out of different worlds, and I think that's right. You've guest lectured in South Korea, North Korea, interestingly. You spend a lot of time in China. You've lectured in Shanghai, Beijing. You've lectured in Tripoli, Mexico, Argentina, Memphis, Ohio, India, West Indies, and Leicester. <laughs> it's like a football song. But I think that's, that, that seems fair. And your friend Bob Mull, he wrote something very lovely and seems perceptive about you. He has the gift to understand the problems and culture of every new community he meets. He understands without needing explanations. I think that's true, having read your book and seen you perform and met you once or twice, and you have some sort of facility with these different worlds. Do you have any sense of why that might be or where that comes from? Do you think all that's fair? One of the things I, I tend not to do, I don't know if I should do it more, is try and analyse myself. I don't know what it is. I think, I'm going to quote Bob Marley, he says, um, the biggest man you ever did see was once just a baby. You can see a hard guy, have big ears, whatever. He was once a little baby. Mm. You said another quote, once a man, twice a child. In other words, when you're a baby, you need your parents' help to do everything, to eat, to go to the bathroom and everything. You become a big, independent person, and then as you get old, you need more help to yeah. eat and go to the bathroom and everything else. And the other thing I know about people is that most of us are what we are because of an accident of birth. If somebody says to me, are you proud to be black? I say, no, not really. I just happen to be black. My mother is black, my father is black. If I was born white, that would be a real achievement. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would be amazing. But I was going to be black, that's it. Mm. The things I've achieved as a black man, I'm proud of. What I've achieved. Am I proud of being British? Not really. If I'm just proud of being British, I have to be proud of colonialism and slavery and yeah. all kinds of things. But there are some things that we've done. I'm proud of British multiculturalism. Most of us are who we are because of an accident of birth. So when I'm arguing with you, I'm really trying desperately to understand why you've come to the place that you've come from. Mm. You know, if somebody's got what we may think of as a backward view of the world, or women, or something like that, I try and understand why they think like that. And if I want to try and change their mind, then I know I've got to come with a, an argument that goes beyond their nationality. I'm going to ask one more specific question in terms of this podcast and libraries, because, Benjamin, in your book, you've talked about your dyslexia and that you were only diagnosed later in life, yeah. thanks to adult education services of the GLC. Stratford in London. Yeah. yeah, and you wrote, my classes cost only one pound. I was instantly tested for dyslexia, and the woman who ran the test was the first person in my life to properly explain why I'd been having trouble with literacy. Her explanation made sense, and from gaining an awareness of the condition, I was able to overcome it. Nowadays, the government has indirectly abolished those services, imposing huge budget cuts on councils and closing down the libraries where such courses would take place. Can I ask 
what you make of those closures of libraries? To their credit, they've not closed a single library. Fantastic. And we work very, very closely with them. And they go out of their way to go to every school to get kids to take out library cards. And as it stands, not a single library is closed in Newham. Well, that is good news. Where I live, every library is closed or is being run by volunteers. And that's a rural community as well, which makes it... Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's awful. I feel passionately about it, you know. Not all people can afford books. I remember before I could read and write properly, I was going to a library, I'd get a book that I felt was interesting. I mean, I could read a bit. And then I would try and read it in the library a lot of the time. Um, Why? Well, it was the late 70s and the 80s. The streets were dangerous. So it was a really safe place. I remember there was a, a place called Yorker in Glasgow, really rough part of um, Glasgow. And they had a library in there, and their thing was getting kids off the street and getting them reading. And every year I'd go there and talk to them. These are kids that would never buy a book, mm. but they thought that this particular library was really cool. They could hang out there. Somebody once said, sorry, I don't know who it was, the libraries are the university of the street, and I really think they are. And... I just think we need to have knowledge on our streets. But knowledge is power. And I think sometimes people don't like too much power being spread amongst people. I may be cynical, but there's so much now which is all about making money. And when it comes to some councils cutting money, Newham's really lucky. Just, you know, not too far from here in Harrogate, cuts, cuts, cuts. I get people writing to me all the time, Benjamin, we're going to occupy our library, can you come and join us? That's what I feel. I, yeah, I, I think it should be a library on every high street. I was in a library and there was a book called The Philosophies and Opinions of Marcus Garvey. And I used to borrow it all the time. Still around. But the one, I, the one I'm talking about was really bound in that old-fashioned way, you know, mm-hmm. and really beautifully bound and had that kind of old smell to it. And it's all about being proud of being a black man and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if we don't use our brains, they will keep us in slavery with change. And, you know, Marcus Garvey is very important for the Rastafarian movement and all that stuff. And I used to borrow the book all the time. And I went into the library one day and they said, um, it wasn't there. I said, where is it? They said, oh, it's been taken off the shelves. You can't have it now. Uh, there's going to be a new edition coming out soon. And I just loved that book because I used to borrow it. I mean, when I say the book, I mean that individual book, I used to borrow it all the time. And as I was leaving, I saw it on like a trolley stacked with books that they were going to either destroy or something. So I nicked it. <laughs> I took it. I took it home and I had it for ages. Many years later, I told this story on TV and the library contacted me and said, it's all right, do you want to bring it in? <laughs> and, scrap the charge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they stamped it and said it's officially been released to me. I've still got it nice. to this day. Nice. I've still got it to this day. Yeah, there's some, the, the library books, if you ever buy a second-hand book and you open it up, you see that library stamp in there. My heart always slightly breaks a little bit because it means either someone's nicked it or it's been just discontinued from that library. But it takes on a special sort of aura. It's got that real, you can tell there's lots of life in those pages, people's lives. Do you want to hear another library story? Yeah, please. <laughs> One year, I can't remember what year it was, but it was when Faith came out, this novel of mine, Faith. Well, um, the crash was outside here, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, the crash in my novel happens outside here. The boycott's this they had announced the figures of libraries of how many books had been borrowed. And I think Jacqueline Wilson had got to the top. Yeah. Who's J- a fellow guest on this podcast, yeah. Oh, J.K. Rowling was somewhere up there, right? And so I was at, I think it's Peter's Library Service, and I said, um, mm, yeah, I'll never be up there with all those, you know, lending they, they have. And they said, Benjamin, there's some figures we keep to ourselves. Your book is the most stolen books from libraries. Nice. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> take that it's a nice accolade and you have said in the book that you now have a library of your own at home this is as well as a little recording studio etc talk us through your library what that looks like i have a library i have a big collection of books yeah 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 there is one bit of a study which kind of looks a bit like a library and they're sectioned off in kind of subjects really so when you walk in the front door to the right there's novels I'm not a great reader of novels, although I'm a writer of novels. So all those are when you walk in to the right. To the left, self-help mm-hmm. kind of books on one side. And there's this big bookshelf. And then on the other side of that bookshelf, there's um, travel. 
Nice. It's kind I of mean, like right brain, left left side, <laughs> right side brain but stuff. This the one in the middle, the one that really stands out is just real old revolutionary stuff. You know, I've mm. got. I imagine that has a bit manifesto. of an, an aura. To it. <laughs> yeah, black Marxism. I've got a, a, nearly every book. Do you remember that series of books that came out? It would have like Marxism for beginners. Oh, absolutely. Martial arts for beginners. Yeah, and, it, and then it would have sex for beginners, <laughs> you know, <laughs> girls for beginners and stuff like that. I've, I think I've got almost every one of them <laughs> and kind of lots of theory stuff and mm. stuff about slavery and, and that, that kind of stuff. When you go into the living room now, there's one section which is, well, the top of it is picture books because it's big and there's no other place for them. And then there's some on the coffee table. And the coffee table at the moment is Cars of Cuba and Lincolnshire Villages and all my religious books. Now, if I had a chance to go to university and do an education, I would do theology. I am crazy about theology. You wouldn't know that. But I, I love reading religions and why people are religious, mm. how religions evolved. I'm fascinated with that stuff. There you'll find books like The Unauthorised Version by Robin Lane Fox. The father of Martha Lane Fox, you know, yes. but he wrote a brilliant book He's on theology and brilliant classicist. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there you'll find books about you know creation myths, mm. books on Islam, books on Judaism. I got I don't know how old it is, but it's really old version of the Torah, the Bible, the Quran. Then I've got books that analyze the Quran and and all that kind of stuff. So all of them are there. And then when you go into where I work, I call that the library. There's a massive section of poetry mm. and autobiographies and dictionaries. I've got probably every every dictionary that David Crystal has done. And then there's a... a lot from us. Yes, that's right, yeah. A little corner where it's got some sexy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which he didn't buy from us. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> no, no, you should Vivian, I was going to ask, we're in this room toppling over with books. Is it Coles to Newcastle? Your, is your home toppling over with um, books as well? Or? It is. Oh, really? It really? You take your home, is. your work home. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it really is. Every room. How is it organised? Is it like it's Benjamin's? It's not organised it like Benjamin's, no. Well, categorized. my old, when I was a drama student, my plays and poetry and so on, yes, they're still organised and after that, no. So I'd like to ask... Benjamin, if you wouldn't mind scanning these shelves in the shop and choosing a book to go home with. With Vivian, is that all right? Of if you have a look together is. and choose something, whatever, it may, it may be an old favourite uh, or There's something stuff new. stuff you're going to want. There's a lot in there, obviously. You're paying for it. I'm, I am paying for it. It's on me. <laughs> and a small thank you for today. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And long Good. bookshops and libraries. Yeah. yeah. Are you busy? No. Have you read The Lions then? Show me. The Lions then? No. Have you? No. And no, I don't know. No, I haven't read it. Right. You know, I think I'm going to go with this one. The Lions Den. Yeah. But it's called The Lions Den Zionism and the Left from Hannah Arendt to Noam Chomsky. It's a Yale University Press book. It looks. Um, Substantial, yeah. yeah, it's a good it choice. Does. So, you're fascinating. You're going to buy that for me, darling? Yeah, it's on me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ex Libris. If, like me, you enjoyed meeting up with Benjamin in Vivian's brilliant bookshop, then please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you tune in. That way, you'll help us champion libraries and independent bookshops. To see inside Newham Bookshop and explore the podcast's other venues, visit our website, www.exlibrispodcast.com. You can also get updates as well as win a signed copy of The Life and Rhymes of Benjamin Zephaniah on Twitter and Instagram. Find me at thatbenholden. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself with Grundy Lazimbra. Its music is composed and performed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine.